Welcome to the Evolve Move Play podcast. I'm your host, Rafe Kelly. At Evolve Move Play, our aim is to help you cultivate a more meaningful life and a more heroic self by reconnecting deeply to movement, mindfulness, nature, and community practices. This podcast was created to bring the best and brightest minds in all of these subjects together to better understand how we can create an empowering and sustainable ecology of practices for personal growth. If you're interested in being part of this ongoing conversation, the best way you can support us and get involved is by joining our Podcast Plus membership. By joining, you will get backstage access to our live podcast airing once a month, as well as a private question and answer session with me and our guests after the show. On top of that, you'll get access to our thriving online community where you can continue these deeper discussions with people all over the world who are just as passionate and curious about these topics as you. More details about the membership as well as the link to get signed up are in the description below. And whether you can join, be sure to like, share, subscribe, and hit that bell icon so that you can be notified every Monday when our episodes drop. Thanks so much for your support, and we hope you enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of the Evolve Move Play podcast. This week, my guest is Dave Wardman from Physical Alchemy. Dave is a teacher of a set of practices, one might call it an ecology of practices, um, in Sydney, Australia. He is a stu- former student of Kit Lachlan from Stretch Therapy. Uh, he studied martial arts, he studied meditation, and um, he, he tends to use a very interesting and, and fun and esoteric language to describe what he's doing, but I think in many ways, uh, it's one of the most aligned projects out there with what we're doing with Evolve Move Play. And in particular, he's playing a lot with how we sort of step outside of um, the limitations of the scientific worldview um, and see the symbolic in an important way. And so in some ways, this interestingly parallels um, my recent episode with Jonathan Pajot, which was something Dave himself was quite curious about and interested in. Um, but Dave comes from a more esoteric or more Eastern tradition um, in his orientation, which I think will be a nice balance to, uh, to all the kind of a discussion around Western Christian tradition recently on the channel. So I think people who are interested in those aspects of the work are going to find this very interesting. I really enjoyed having Dave on and getting to dive deep into his worldview and um, how we can apply that and think more deeply about the questions that brings up and how we can live this life better as human beings. So without further ado, enjoy my conversation with Dave Boardman. Dave, hello, physical alchemist himself. Welcome hello. to the All Move Play podcast. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me on. This conversation feels like it's been a long time coming. <laughs> Maybe it's just the right time. Perhaps it is. The last time I saw you, you give the sound of uh, Coca-Cola in the background. It's not Coke, it's lacrosse. <laughs> um, much more auspicious. Uh, last time we saw each other, I believe we were jumping around in trees in um, Centennial Park. Yep, you were right up the top of that one. Right up there. <laughs> I love that park. I cannot wait to go back. Yeah. Hopefully, hopefully. I've, I've, I found a few other trees around Sydney that I'll show you next time as well. Ooh, nice. I look forward to it. I cannot wait to be able to visit Australia again. It's a fine country. It is. So I asked you some intense questions I remember last time about what was the, the purpose of your practice and how do you, um, how do you uh, sort of justify it epistemologically <laughs> that old thing and well. i think it would be cool if it seems like you're you're in a place where you're much more interested in sort of laying out 
the architecture of your thought and what what these terms actually mean um, than you yeah. were. Um, so I think that it'd be good to start with sort of like start with that. But I think I think the first question I want to talk about is the language itself that you use. Yeah. So it seems to me yeah. in a lot of ways your project is actually very similar to mine, right? That there's a ton of overlap. I um I was talking to John Verbeke recently and I was saying essentially like evolve move play has almost evolved into a kind of um a an attempt at the reintegration of gymnasia and philosophia. And maybe we'll whisper in the background a little bit of religio, but not too much. Um, um, yeah. And and that seems like it's actually a lot of what you're doing. Um, but I, I really try, I think I try to to nest myself within the scientific frame and describe things in a very earnest way that, that fits within that. Um, and I think that you've chosen to, uh, to, to try to build a different language. And yeah. it has a lot of sense of mystery to it. Um, it does. And I'm curious to hear you talk about why the mystery and, 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 and what is the utility of the new language? Um, it's a good point. And there's, um, there's always kind of problems with coining new terms and creating a language around stuff, but I ran into too many errors of kind of misperception between people who were doing other seemingly similar bodies of work and my own. So I just it was a little bit frustrating in the beginning because it's clear when you're with the person, some of the things I talk about, uh, whether they're there or not, but the person themselves can't tell the difference if they don't have both or the multiple um, experiences and skills and qualities or what I have, what have you running in their system. So it forms a little bit of a parallax in that if you don't have the, these perceptions, you will hear certain words and you will reframe them back to your own stance. I guess there's a lot of similar things, I guess, with, with physical training, like people will make assumptions based on one type of skill set that it will transfer. And maybe it does sometimes, but then it doesn't. And then they have a I think people have a lot of profound experiences when they've studied one physical skill set and they go to another and they find out there's actually some really different things available in something that they thought was quite similar. I mean, it's still using a body, but then you go somewhere slightly adjacent and it can be incredibly different, even just keeping within the realm of physical training. So it's even much more like that in this type of work. And so I tried to explain it to a number of people who were well versed in these things, but it kept running into these errors. And then I was like, okay, um, what should I do about this? So I try, tried instead of explaining it to people because, uh, because of the parallax, I tried to explain what it wasn't. So kind of an apophatic method, trying to explain what it's not. And I've kind of been running with that since and it's worked actually quite well, but it doesn't let me talk about what it is. It lets me talk about <laughs> what it isn't, which is kind of interesting. So I started to, some of the categories of things I'm talking about, if you, if you mix metaphors a little bit, um, kind of like what Jonathan was talking about in that talk you did with him the other day, where you get things that seem to be mismatched completely in different groups 
and you either show a pattern similarity by shifting language or you show that two things that seem very close are actually very different using language and there are i've been playing with it it's still kind of experimental but i've been having fun playing with it as well but there's seemingly it's working because i'm getting people who are asking kind of the right questions nowadays rather than is this or that or this so it's kind of like that it's actually worked better using this kind of fusion of suggesting what it isn't and then creating neolisms i'd kind of rather not but then some of the terms that explain something quite similar are really archaic sanskrit terms or there just really isn't a an analog in this day and age so i just graphed two words together and it works quite nicely and i try and make them as funny as possible because i like having fun with my work as well humor is good so just a couple things there um so footnote for the audience jonathan is referring to my interview with jonathan pagel um i think that the intersection between your perspective and his perspective is, is kind of interesting to get into but also can you describe what a parallax is um i don't have the physics term on me exactly at this moment but it's kind of like a an optical term that means when you're looking at it from different perspectives it looks different okay i guess would be a way um some of the terms i'll clean up a little bit when i actually formally put them down so i kind of riff these things out a lot of what i'm doing is kind of testing for responses when i do these things as well because depending on who responds or doesn't respond and how they respond it gives me an incredibly large array of information which i can utilize yeah absolutely so for me the, the the genesis of involvement with play was in having been in physical practice really all my life i've been doing martial arts since i was six and then gymnastics since when i started when i was 15 and I played basketball and trained my, i tried to run some track and, you know um played soccer all, all, all kinds of stuff but then when i discovered parkour i found that i was transformed by it um, in a really profound way and, and it made me curious like well what what is that and then over time i became curious well why isn't everyone who comes into parkour not getting that mm -hmm. and why are they why why do people start a physical practice and then stop like if, if it's if it has this life-changing potential why would you ever stop mm. and then from that you know i started doing research on play and flow and went back to the martial arts and then got into jordan peterson and john craikey and all these philosophical ideas and i have a sense that there is there's a uh, something in common in your journey right you you i think kit was your first main teacher no, no he was my second actually but yeah definitely influence in there in the beginning so was it martial arts first for you yeah, I did martial arts first. So I did kind of, I was actually not as active as I probably should have been at high school physically. I played field hockey. Mm -hmm. um, in primary school, it was just kind of rough and tumble and climbing on everything. And yeah. you know how it was. I think a lot of the guys of mine and your vintage kind of have that kind of, see, like before they banned all the cool equipment for kids yeah, breaking yeah. their arms all the time, like, really cool equipment and we just like rotated between the games that they 
they banned, like it was brandings and they'd ban that because some kid got a bruise somewhere and then you'd do British Bulldogs and they'd ban that because some kid broke their collarbone and you'd climb on the equipment and they'd ban you from that. And it just kind of rotated around like that. But then in high school, I foolishly didn't get into it as much, even though I was really actually kind of philosophically inclined towards martial arts through encountering Bruce Lee, kind of as a lot of us did in kind of mid primary school mm -hmm. and just like looking at the like secret book like that we stole from the friend's older brother it's like whoa like yeah i totally understand what this is talking about and you're just like looking at a diagram that's about it is that tao jeet kune do or um... yeah yeah it was tao jeet kune do the classic yeah, yeah. um so it was that and then at uni like i went from high school into uni and i just kind of had this man you gotta do like martial arts like instead of just like looking at it in jackie chan movies and all of that stuff just go and do it and so i went around i actually encountered a really really amazing teacher just at my university campus so he was really uh, kind of the starting point of it all and i went through a very big transformation then of one order of how i mapped them these and it was it was just kind of the perfect teacher the perfect beginning for this type of whatever these things are that we go on. Mm -hmm. And then kind of, I did it like six or seven years of that. And then I got sick right at the transition period. I kind of, there's a little overlap between, cause I met Kit through him. And then there's a little bit of overlap and then I got sick, I stopped martial arts. And then I ended up studying with Kit and studying bodywork methods and going a little bit more into the restorative stuff and all of that because I was needing to restore myself as we do and so it kind of flipped from quite like it was all strength training kettlebells and martial arts and all the time and just eating and drinking whatever I felt like and then it's kind of switched and I got to experience something else so yeah that was the beginning bit of the journey nice. so Kit uh, for those of you in the audience who's not who are not aware, Kit Lachlan is um, a really wonderful teacher from Australia as well. He, uh, his, his brand is called Stretch Therapy. So theoretically, it's about stretching, but uh, it's a bit deeper than and, that. And uh, therapy. <laughs> uh, so, so you went from, so I know you had, you said you had some like health issues. And, and, yeah. some, and that was part of what, what kind of yeah. took you out of the martial arts and into, um, into working with Kit. And yeah, then, I mean, sorry, I just, I got into work with Kid a little bit beforehand, like it kind of, I got sick right, maybe six months after starting Kit's work, but I hadn't really met Kit personally yet. Mm -hmm. So there was some overlap there, but pretty close to the beginning there. So then you, um, you were able to achieve a lot of healing through doing stretch therapy. Yes. And then I think the, the third teacher in your journey is a meditation teacher. Uh, yes. Okay. Yeah, he's like, doesn't do any physical stuff, like full, full on contemplative specialist, if you would like. So I met him because I wasn't interested in, <laughs> strangely enough, that stuff really at all until like I started training with Kit and Kit would constantly go on about various buddhist and yogic themes as he was talking about strength training and everything else he was talking about 
and I was like in the beginning I was like yeah he likes this and then it kind of like all right like may as well give it a shot like can't do anything else at the moment and so I started doing that and then it was interesting and then I started to look into it a bit and then I met my teacher Lawrence because he was Kit's teacher and at that point in time it was just like I couldn't like because Kit was like one of the more interesting people in my hometown it's like who would teach Kit like it didn't make any sense to me at that moment so it's like well may as well meet him and see what what it's like and then something incredibly interesting happened when I met Lawrence and then it kind of that changed everything that was kind of the beginning of physical alchemy actually in the real sense strangely enough yeah okay so um, so you have this evolution from let's say a very yang physical system um and, and your martial arts background was that a chinese martial arts background or where did you start with? um he did a fusion thing the best way to think of it was he was qualified in lots of things um he it was it's kind of like jeet kune do his main martial arts was Chinese and Jeet Kune Do, but he'd also done boxing and judo and wrestling and a lot of the stick and blade stuff from Southeast Asia. And he was a bouncer and a person who was hired by the government to do certain training of people and all those things. So he's actually quite similar to the guy that you like, Steve Morris, as far as I can tell, except his base was Chinese and not Japanese. Yeah. As far as I've seen of Mr. Morris's work. Your, um, is there a name for this guy's stuff? It's called Yushidao. I don't know how much he's doing anymore. He's actually, I think he still runs classes, but I don't think he contracts. He did a PhD in Anglo-Saxon poetry and he's a professor now. I feel like I've heard, heard about something like this in Australian people, Australians yeah. before, so I'm just curious. But, He's um, a cool guy, really cool guy. So, I, as I remember our conversation in Australia, you basically you you hit these three teachers in succession, and they yeah they sort of hit you at interesting points in your life. Well, I wouldn't I wouldn't have studied with the next one if I hadn't done the previous body of training, which is kind of auspicious, even. Yeah, and then there was something in the intersection of these three different experiences yes that um, catalyzed a transformation yes. to uh to borrow some of your terminology that, that felt deeply meaningful to you oh yeah big time and each one had its each one was its own transmutation but the way they built was really really i know i feel pretty lucky about it and it's actually kind of like there was a point when i was kind of opting to do something much easier to explain and just be done with it. But I just like, no, you can't do it, man. It's like, yeah, I know that. this is going to be a, fuck. This is going to be a lot harder than I expected, but I'm going to do it. What? And that's been, that's been accurate. It has been harder than I expected, but I have done it. <laughs> when a couple of years into developing involvement with play, when it was like, I had all these really smart people in the industry who become interested in it, like you and Simon and Craig, and you know, I had all this validation, um, but I was still really struggling to make it work as a as a business. I had this this desire to just go get a yoga teacher training, <laughs> just like uh, just just like 
just use it as like a like a like a stealth technique, right? I, I think many many people have done that particular pathway. <laughs> <laughs> I think I, I think you I think we, you and I went back and forth on Facebook about about this. I was going to invent a whole lineage of. Uh, uh, yogic kung fu from Burma that uh, was all about moving in trees in order to uh, legitimize cool. itself. <laughs> you, but, could, you, could, you could go with the Spry Druids. That book yeah. got the, the best name, like most number of ticks. Sylvan, Sylvan Tree Flow Yoga. Exactly. <laughs> um, so you've, you've you felt that there's this transmutation. And so now you go down the path of trying to say, well, how do I help people achieve this? That was actually not before the thing that I really call the transmutation, interestingly okay. enough. So the sequence went martial arts, getting sick, training, the, the rebalancing thing with Kit, then meeting my teacher Lawrence, and then he disappeared as he does being the wandering sage he is. And I'd moved to Sydney with like young child and trying to set things up and trying to like irritatingly close to forming my art, but not really in that way that I think everyone who's done something that doesn't fit the mold has to go through or does go through something similar. And so I put a lot of kind of struggle into it and then periods of letting go and all of these things like that that go in a nice cycle and then something very curious happened i was in a period of vast confusion with all the bodies of work i was trying to integrate into models and match epistemologies or whatever you want to say about it and it <laughs> wouldn't really fit that wellness like i know there's something here somewhere and then something interesting happened on a perceptual level that's it wasn't a, a, a state it was a station something completely stabilized and everything fell into place but it was then incredibly difficult to talk about and so it's kind of been remapping how that came about how it fits in with all these other bodies work because i think it's kind of clear that there's a lot of people trying to utilize particularly physical methods to do something about the grand crisis everywhere that doesn't really kind of get pinned down in one place fully. So that was like 2014 and it's just been like trying, like we started with at the beginning, trying to kind of get a way to teach it uh, at least um, I can teach it in person fine, which is kind of the, the cool thing. Like whenever it kind of gets a bit shit when trying to do it online, it's just like, oh, well, like I have regular people I work with and it's going particularly fine. Like maybe it's just that, maybe I just work with people. But then recently I found out that I can do it over Zoom, which is interesting. Yeah. And so that makes things I mean, there's kind of a really like stupid thing about trying to make a book out of this, but I'm kind of a foolish guy, so I might try anyway. So at some point I'll need to have something so people can kind of go, I think I might understand something of what he's saying, but at least it's kind of interesting. Maybe I'll go and check it out. The problem with that is that some of the effects take months and years to actually 
to get and play with. So yeah, I guess it's the same with a lot of people who teach this stuff. You've just got to have some level of people seeing you're doing something that's different and trying to figure out where it is and then coming along and playing and then something might happen. Yeah, that's why I like parkour and the live martial arts as my base because I can, base. I can just do, I can just show that I have skill, right? Yeah, yeah. At least for some time. And then, and then I can show that I can get people skill. <laughs> like, that's good stuff. I, I'll, I'm, I'm, happy, I'm hoping to, to create transformation on all these levels, but at minimum, you'll be able to have fun and jump around. Yeah, I have a little thing that I developed like that. Like I have a number of physical skill sets that I'm confident in getting into people. Not everything, but there's a few that I'm very good at. And it's just like, well, if people come along and they get those, and that's fine. It's not what I really am wanting to do or I'm about, but it's kind of, it's nice. Like people get whatever they get out of it and they go around. And it's not like that's a, there's a no real negative to that. Yeah. I want to go back for a second because uh -huh. you said something that, that you feel like there's, there's a, there's a large number of people or a, a fair number of people at least who are some number of people some some number of people who are let's say looking at the the body as the body-based practices as a um as a base for for addressing the meaning crisis i guess um i thought that was an interesting thing to hear because i i think that that number in the in the number of people in the fitness industry or the movement industry is still really yeah. small. But I feel like in the, in the grand scheme of, of the size of the movement culture and then fitness and then, you know, health, it seems like a really small crew of people to me actually. Um, and, and most, and aside from myself, it seems like most of you guys are not really putting yourself out there very much. I'm like, I'm having a conversation with John Drake and Jonathan Peugeot, but I feel like you and Simon and, and Craig could be having these conversations too and Kit, um, but it's still like this tiny little corner and I'm hoping to blow the doors open a little bit on, on people realizing that there's a, a bigger pool of people. But I'm, I'm curious to, about your perception of that and, and how many people do you really think are, are deeply sort of looking at physical arts as a, uh, as a tool. So yeah, talk more about that. Um, I think there are, but to different degrees and there's different types of it. So within the area that I'm particularly in, it's very low, but mm. I also personally think that it does something like it's a very potent thing that happens within each person. So even a few creates something. So this is, this is a, mm, it's also just like some of the aspects of my stuff, it's probably not going to get that big because of what you have to look into in yourself, but that's fine as well. Like that's why you have the outer circle of fun and games to play with. Um, but I personally think that even a few people working kind of and getting deeper into this stuff can have a very big effect yeah. upon like who knows how wide I don't really 
consider it like I don't think you can plot it so it's just it's a thing that I feel very strongly is going to happen but I just focus on the people who are here at the moment yeah um, someone gave me a book called shoveling elephant dung um, it was a Buddhist book um, I didn't get very much out of it except for one part which was uh, who's the most important person that you should be giving your attention to at any moment? Okay. The answer is whoever you're with, right? And, and so it's like, this is a Jordan Peterson, Peterson idea as well. Like oftentimes our most powerful means of actually making changes just is you have to start locally, right? You have to start at organizing your own life, improving your family, developing your friendships, making all these things sort of uh, run well, and then those ripples ripple out. I was reading a bunch of your posts in preparation for this and listening to your, your conversations, and you use, you use a lot of terminology from alchemy. And mm -hmm. obviously this is perhaps a metaphor or maybe a, uh, an analogy that you're using, or, or maybe I'm, I'm mischaracterizing it by, uh, by calling it that. But, uh, I read up also on Jordan Peterson's chapter on alchemy in, um, in Maps of Meaning in preparation for this. And I, it's a pretty fascinating subject that I think is, is actually really hard to understand what it meant and what it was from a modern perspective. So I'm curious to hear you tell, I'm curious about why alchemy and how that can to sort of uh, be a language that you use and, and how, how deep does it go? <laughs> how deep does alchemy go in the project? <laughs> Reasonably deep and also it kind of in an odd way covers everything that you said, but also some other things. So it is, I understand a difficult thing. It's also not one thing. There were many alchemists across many continents and for millennia. So it's not, um, alien to humans it's just always been a, a craft that's practiced whichever one it was um, and there's lots of different ones to do with different uh, properties it's it is a really good word and in a funny way I actually had the name come to me first I was trying to create the name for what I did yeah. and it just kind of I had all these ones that and it's like, no, nah, there's too many words. And it's just like, and it just came to me like one morning, I think almost as I woke up, it was just like physical alchemy. It didn't come in a voice. It just kind of popped in. It's like, fuck, that's a cool name. And it's like, that's the one. But then I was like in a period of like not listening to my intuition as clearly as I am now. So I wrote it down and waited for like six months. And it's just like, and I looked at it again. It's like, yeah, it's still cool. It's still the one. It's still the one. It's like, oh, fuck, man, just get the website and be done with it. Okay, good. So a little bit of it came, um, it's, it's grown in, significant in, a very, uh, in significance in a very funny way, but a little bit of it came from a book that was very profound, the influential um, kind of when I was studying with Kit in that particular phase called The Reenchantment of the World, where Morris Berman does a very interesting take on alchemy, which I take partially from that. I'm actually not inclined towards the psychological interpretation too much. 
more towards how he interprets it and how it's done in India and some of the older uh, places where it was practiced. So I'm slightly more old school with that um, than a lot of the people who in modern times use the term. And this is a little bit why people, a little bit of it is what I bumped into because everyone would um, think that I was talking about Jungian stuff when I'm not. Not at all. Um, not that, that like you can take that perspective if you like, but it wasn't related to that. Or people would make jokes about like charlatans and puffers, of course, which there were. So it's, it is a clouded thing. It's also for me, it's the fact that these crafts were practiced in completely alien epochs that we don't really, we can't understand with the modern imprint on our minds. So there's a lot of stuff there. It goes very deep, actually. But then a lot of this stuff I have to tease out because the term itself actually functions as a test. It's one of the um, parallax terms. You say alchemy and you'll get what the person's mind shape thinks it's about pretty clearly, but they won't get what I'm talking about. And so you can play with that. And I do a lot because people will tell you what they think about the word alchemy just like they will tell you what they think about the word mind or the word awareness. But when they tell you those things, they'll also tell you where they're coming from very clearly. Alchemy is about the transmutation of substances, right? Pretty much. And that's a really good thing or like refining, like the fine from the course or a little bit, not in the way that I use it, but raising vibrations or like <laughs> bringing out dormant properties. I kind of like the dormant properties one the best. So as I was listening to your, to your, 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 uh, your, your videos and everything, it's a few central ideas that start to come out. Right? One is the idea, well, was the idea of the disenchantment and the necessity of re-enchanting the world. Was the idea that part of what is holding us back is a kind of, um, what you call mind spaces, or is that the term? Mind, mind shape. Actually. Mind shape. Sorry. But mind, now, <laughs> mind I'll shape. Call it something else later. Right. Okay. So we um, let's say we face a problem, which is the disenchantment of the world. Part of the. Tell me if I'm I'm getting your kind of approach correct. We face the problem, which is the disenchantment of the world, right? um, which you might map in some sense to say the idea of the meaning crisis, but maybe not precisely. So I'd be curious to, to see where those map and they don't mind. Now, as part of that, you have the idea that we are stuck in a set of mind uh, shapes that sort of operate rather mechanistically within us that don't allow us to effectively address this problem. And then you have three levels of work, the physical, uh, the metaphysical and the meta-metaphysical. The physical is, <laughs> yeah. The physical is the what you call white work. The um, no, the no. physical, the physical is Sorry, the black, black work. Black yeah. work. And then that goes to the, and then if I remember correctly, it goes to the, the metaphysical is the the red work, and then it finishes at the white work. Right? Is the uh, the meta-metaphysical other way around? But yeah, you're getting there. Yeah. We're getting there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the goal of these of going through these types of work 
is to be able to break out of these uh, mind shapes that don't serve us in yeah. order to re-enchant the world. Is that a fair description of the project? Pretty reasonable, pretty reasonable. Okay. So they came about like, I think if you read a lot of the quote disenchantment literature, like a lot of the general features are known and even the general features for me map there's a lot in common with what people are talking about in terms of the meaning crisis and all of those things like that. Like even like all of the stuff with embodiment and movement, the underlying things underneath that, the themes involved in what they aim to re rehabilitate in the world are also included in the general aspects of the disenchantment. And for a long while, that's, that's where I sat. It's just like, yeah, you do these things like, and it fixes everything up but then it just like that was one of the that was when that interesting period happened for me where i had a big transmutation a big shift and it just so i saw these much deeper currents and there it's there's really no way to explain it because the transmutations that you have beforehand are quite common like for instance from going from black to white is reasonably common even without people really trying or understanding anything of what i'm talking about in this process that one happens a lot through in the movement culture or people just have it in their lives by digesting kind of like bad things that happen or introspection or just some accumulation of of knowledge about the world and themselves and what have you <clears throat> But the one that happens across the white to red is very, very rare. And it kind of inverts and turns sideways a lot of these things. And that's when you start to get that kind of thing that Jonathan was mentioning, where you get these really interesting pattern matches. And it's not, so some of them you can say, oh yeah, but it's like the actual shape itself actively resists seeing them because it doesn't want to see itself. And so you get some really interesting optical things that happen and perceptual things that happen, which means that people will, they'll do that thing that I was mentioning in the beginning where they'll go, ah, oh, this is about this and they'll put it in that category. And it's just like, so it's, it's this triadic, this ternary structure that's underneath that actually starts to pull apart um, the known, knowledge that one has and it works better in a way if someone has quite a decent amount of general knowledge it kind of puts a, a current through that that then completely reformats that into a different kind of whatever whatever you want to say perceptual lens and then eventually that shifts again in an even more dramatic way and you get a very interesting world it's not like it's not crazy like you're not seeing like what you're talking about like there's no faces in the clouds unless you smoke like a whole lot of dope but it's it's kind of the way you could explain it maybe and i've thought about metaphors to try and say this is it's kind of like you exist in the universe of grayscale beforehand and then you start to notice a few colors and you're like what the fuck is that what is that and of course if you're in that you will go looking at what are these things and then eventually the world turns colored. And so it looks the same as it did before, but then there's these other layers you 
have a very hard time trying to describe to people and you'll encounter some very interesting reactions to people if you try and do it at certain junctions. And so you just kind of sit there, if you're me, and go, how the fuck am I going to do this? But then that's when those kind of separations I've been doing with words start to come into effect. And there's also some feel that maybe just there's kind of a procession to how these things go in terms of how people follow different bodies of work. So if you look at like the amount of people reading quite technical books these days who are also doing physical work, maybe it's not heaps like what you said, but it's a sure a lot more than it used to be. Yeah. And that kind of, for me, that's, that leads up to a very specific shock when you have those things turned upside down, which is very, fun for me to watch happen, but doesn't happen that much either. This idea that there's a, an emergence, let's say, of deep intellectual interest with physical practice or even mm -hmm. philosophical, maybe even religious, is, 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 in, is intriguing to me. Like someone was asking me like, well, like how did you end up, a lot of people actually recently have been asking me like, how did you end up where you are at, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and there's lots of interesting elements to that answer. But um, part of what I was talking about, a substantial part of it is, is actually not me, it's the people that I've interacted with, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, I teach a workshop and I think it's about X and I ask people what they got out of it and they all tell me why. Then the next time I teach that workshop, I now have why very high on my salience landscape, right? And that mm -hmm. changes how I behave. And I was giving the example of, of the, the Jonathan Pajot, right? Here I am, I've been active on the internet as a person within the parkour community for 16 years, right? I've, I've put out lots of stuff about motor learning, about strength training for parkour, about speed, all this stuff. And mm -hmm. the most popular video in the last year on my channel by far is me talking to an Orthodox Christian at Icon Cult, right? It's, it's, <laughs> it's 10 times as popular as anything else that I've put on my channel recently. Now, part of that is because Jonathan has a large audience that found it, right? But my audience seems to like it too. Yeah, it's, it, had no, it had no thumbs down and like 300 thumbs up when I looked at it. Yeah. a few hours ago so that's sort of like those are the things i i like watching though because they tell you something like if there's absolutely no thumbs down the viewing is substantial that's an incredibly rare thing it's like when you see a book on amazon and it's like all five stars and it's got a decent number of reviews it's like that's pretty interesting and there's no kind of reviews like tearing it down in whatever way and it's yeah. the same when you get one that's got like all five and one stars. It's like, that's really split the masses down the middle. <laughs> the ones yeah. with kind of like boring, like all over the place ones are not particularly interesting to look at. Yeah, I always read, when I read reviews of a book, I always read the five star and the, five, the one star reviews, right? Yeah, yeah. But you can, like the thing is like, particularly when you're dealing with what I call like substances or like creative work that exists outside the mind shape, it will provoke mind shape reactions as it tries to explain it. So if you read reviews of stuff that's like this, you will look at the provocation patterns, which are really insightful for how these things work. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. 
Um, so I'm, I'm really curious, actually. You said that you got a lot of that Peugeot interview. You felt like he was- Yeah, yeah, that was great. I love yeah. that one. He was the closest to your perspective in a lot of ways of anything that I had posted. Yeah, strangely yeah. enough. And <laughs> so I've been shocked, honestly, that more people haven't been like, why are you talking to all these Christians on this channel, right? Because, I didn't know where they came from. I didn't know where you found them all, but. <laughs> yeah, like I, um, like I was raised on the internet in the era of the war between the creationists and the new atheists, right? And so in, in sort of left-leaning, liberal, uh, highly educated circles, like being a, a conservative Christian, that was the, the most terrible thing you could be. Mm -hmm. um, and that, that's kind of my expectation. So when I started to share some of these voices on my channel and they're not creationists, and, they don't really map to conservatism in any easy way, I don't think, at least traditional American conservatism of the 90s and aughts. But, but I, I did expect a little bit of blowback. And I really haven't gone there. But one, one question that I did have was like, oh, there, there was one person who, who was reactive to it and he just wanted to make sure that he had other people who, who represented the other traditions, right? And I was like, yeah, I wanna do that. I'm gonna talk to Dave, I'm gonna talk to Craig, I'm gonna talk to, Craig Mallet, who we mentioned a number of times, is a good friend, a mutual friend of ours, who's a Dallas practitioner and moving back, um, uh, Kit. And, and so, yeah, so I, I was having, I was thinking about having you on in particular, because um, I think of you as mostly coming from an Eastern sort of orientation. Eastern and Central Asian, yeah. Eastern and Central Asian. So I'm curious, as someone who comes from them, what was it that was, that felt so resonant for you in that interview with uh, Jonathan Peugeot. Well, like it's for me, the thing that kind of <clears throat> happens, like I came from the same thing, like you go to university and like, I guess I was left with thing. I haven't really thought about it since university, like, but everyone's like, Christian's bad, like science good, you know, the story. And it's just like, and it felt very strong. I went to a, an Anglican high school and like, it was the thing not to like Christian stuff then, like, and I felt that very strongly. And then I kind of just got over it and throughout the journey. And I haven't really, I don't think about it one way or the other, but then it's just like, when you start to do some of these contemplative methods and they start to work, you start to see that people from all types of traditions and even not religious traditions that do it it works and so I'm only really interested in things that um, for want of a better word change the awareness and consciousness of the person and so if they come from Christian so be it if they come from whatever else so be it the fact of the matter if they actually work the person turns into a better person in lots of ways and some of those ways are actually what we're looking at like the person becomes a better person so, so th this is actually where where I have a little, this is my question for you, right? Yeah, yeah. My question for Pajot was, how do you establish a truth claim within your phenomenological worldview, right? Yep. And my question for you is actually, what's the telos? Like, I hear you often talk about, a lot of your stuff sounds like a critique of the worldview, right? And I recognize elements of it. When you talk about mind shape three, like I, I think that that, uh, you know, 
that I reflect elements of that, right? Um, and it's like, okay, we, we take apart that, we get out of the mechanical triggering of this specific mind shape. Mm -hmm. And then, is there, right? Like to me, there's, there's always elements of the mind that are going to be, we can move towards being more free, perhaps. This is where it comes down to. So for me, it's like everyone understands habit. It's a very easy thing. People are habit. And you can see how you can view those habits as being mechanical if you, if you just do them without awareness. That's a pretty kind of obvious base level thing. Then if you realize there's different classes of habits and people have different habits and there's different depths of habits, if you understand that the general thing underneath it is if you remove habits from the organism, the organism has more freedom and also has more awareness and you can actually at a certain stage see this in a person and so when you see that you just see the person's liberated particularly the deeper habits they start like the physical body is different but that's part of the parallax you can only see it if you yourself have removed a similar depth thing and there'll be completely different habit structures for different mind shapes so then you look and you can, it's easy because the person of different shapes or different traditions or whatever, different everything, if they have removed a significantly deep habit, there is more, uh, you have to use shit terms like voltage, but the, the quality of awareness is tangibly different. And you can get, you could use the word emergent, you can, after a certain point, tell someone who's done this quote, deep work, because it's perceptible not just it's perceptible in habit mapping which is how you have to talk about it in text but it's just plain perceptible to the eye and to the to the feel so what what i hear is this idea that essentially you talk about essence right i do right so let's say that the, that there is some underlying essence of it within within the human being and that the mind shape uh, is um, it's like a set of breaks. Or, yes, uh, that's a good way of saying it. Yeah. It's like gumming up the tubes through which the essence can can move. Something like this, contracting. It's like meta metaphysical tension. Yeah. So the whole thing with stretching and tension plays through the whole equation with what I do. It's very similar and. It's not a direct translation, but you can take physical metaphors quite, quite a way through and they work really well because they're, particularly if you do physical work, they're tangible and at least you have some type of a symbol to take into a different realm and have a, a map there. It, it almost sounds to me, so I suppose I'll state this in the most tricky way, but it sounds to me like your God is, is liberating liberating from habit and liberating from preconditioned um, response. Reasonably accurate. Like there's, there's kind of in different schools of um, practices involving this stuff, there are sometimes ideas that like there's a cultivated cultivation type idea that you have to build yourself up and get stuff and make a more powerful version of yourself and all of these things like that. And then there's another way, which is uh, you are removing 
habits. You are already like the, the essential nature is there and it's untarnished. You just have to cream off, like clean off the grime and like oil check or whatever. Like, and I know some people don't like the mechanical metaphors for the body, but the fact is that the habit structures do work in a mechanical type way, but the essence is not, it's mercurial and it doesn't obey that particular mechanicalism. So it's kind of a third path between them. A god of alchemy in the Western tradition, right? Material. Mm. Yeah. So the prima materia is, the, the, is, is mercury. So my reaction to that is, I, I think that we actually rely on I mean, I don't know that you can get beyond some level. Like, we have to use heuristic control, right? If we, if we end up in a place where we have no guiding constraints, the universe is combinatorial explosive and there's, no, there's nowhere to go. So the simple yes. removal of all of the structure um, doesn't, doesn't actually, it, that's not a good God to me. No, and I, it's, it's one of these paradoxes, though, because if you meet people who have done these things, they don't normally do that if, they're, if they've done the training correctly. They don't turn into amoral, do-anything people. Well, wait. Correctly to what? Because if correctly is just to the removal of things, then that is correct, right? So that, that, that's, that's the question. It's like... That's why I come but, that's, but saying there's something saying there's nothing there on the bottom either. Well, what I hear so when you say the bottom is actually that sounds like saying that the telos reveals itself once you remove all maybe the it does. Perhaps, perhaps, but um, but so telos for <laughs> we're using the Greek terminology, but it just means end goal, right? What is it moving towards? And so my, like within, within my stuff, right? Really come down to yeah. the idea. It's fundamentally a Christian idea, right? Though it's not, not with the dogmatism of Christianity, but that the highest good is, is love, right? Godlike love. And that, that, the, that we pursue truth, that we need to pursue truth in order to serve love. And we need to cultivate virtue, right? So we want to be able to strip away all the things that hold us back from being better able to serve that. Mm -hmm. When I hear just strip away, strip away, strip away, and then the essence reveals itself, what I what I what I question is the direction of better, right? I, I hear a lot of a lot of when when the physical alchemy is done correctly, when the white work is done correctly, this will happen but I have a hard time understanding what defines correct. Yeah, and a lot of it is just very difficult to explain. But if you look at like one of my major traditions is Zen. Mm -hmm. And so the thing that comes out at the bottom of that is wisdom and compassion. And if you look at some of the schools that come out of the particularly Korean school, it's also love, wisdom and compassion. Okay, so what is the distinction between compassion and love and what does wisdom mean? These are very big questions, which <laughs> I, 
part of me so i'll give a, i'll give one answer but then part of me is this type of stuff there's a principle in my work that i haven't done a video about that i'm calling true lies mm -hmm. so one of the principles it's kind of like an entropic force that goes through bodies of work like this and what it is it's when people talk about states and stations where they are not it automatically has to be an error even if the original statement itself is true it's true for that being uttering it in that particular state but it's not like let's say i'm trying to talk about something from an awake state i can't do that because i'm not in that state. i can puppet i can mimic i can ape what the zen master says but then that's like there's lots of funny stories about that in the zen tradition so it's in a way what i'm doing is there's a little a little bit of that flavor in what i do in that it's in the way that people normally interact with philosophy and the i see these ideas it you get a kind of joke effect afterwards but it's incredibly difficult to talk about these things because the mind just keeps rebooting into what it can know at that particular point. And so it's, they're good questions. And some of it's probably linguistic, some of it's probably because I don't study too much of the origin of the logos and all this, but people um, have this habit of talking about things they don't stabilize and so this is one of the reasons going back right to the beginning that i use these languages is because people who know or who have the experience i have and are stabilizing it will instantly recognize what i'm talking about even if they come from a different tradition but people who don't will bend it and do whatever they feel like with it or whatever the mind shape feels like with it at that particular time so all of the questions like that aside um wisdom is kind of the the utilizing of awareness of a high degree in the moment for the good of the human beings around you i guess would be a kind of um good way to see it but it's kind of like a higher version of that parkour like be strong to be useful thing which is a pretty noble thing i think so helping beings around you and the compassion is you're also it's not just doing an action you are also like the connection between you and that person the empathy between you and that person is so high it's it's not kind of yeah like if you've experienced someone who's in that particular some of these places doing what is love and compassion they're different but related and wisdom is in there too and they all kind of just resonate out of that particular state in the exact correct moment for whatever is happening which is really quite a interesting and miraculous thing to see but it's one of those things like if that person's not here and we can't both talk about what's happening or if you haven't met someone like that it's it will just get me like risk uh, misinterpreted and will go all over the place so this is the nature of dealing with things that are perceptually gated and a lot of the work that's talking about these things is actually bound within what i'm calling the mind shape 
aspect of the disenchantment. So it's kind of locked in there in this interesting fashion. I'm going to back up for a second um, and ask why, why should we want to re-enchant the world? I think the kind of what's happening in the world is enough of the answer to that. The amount of disharmony, the amount of people who can't talk to the people who like, I know people who like, who are very good friends of me, who if you put them in a the room, they would be like at each other's throats, literally, like without too many like things going sideways. And everyone's kind of in a panic. We can't communicate across different fields of inquiry. We put certain bodies of work in the wrong place. It's kind of like a puzzle that's all out of whack. But personally, I believe the pieces to fit together are there. People just need to have the correct function for where they are. So like I said before, I'm not a Zen master at the moment. So I try not to talk about stuff mm. that's like that. But I am a physical alchemist. I need to try to talk to people about what that entails um, because I think it has a potential to be part of what harmonizes these things. Like we were talking about with uh, Jonathan as well, like I don't use science as a primary vessel, but it's in my tertiary structures. And I did do a science degree and I do understand that it's kind of going to be used to do any type of the fixing or be a part, one of the tools at least, but it also is missing certain elements, at least in its current form, which is for my mind largely because it's science three, it's scientific materialism, whereas you could use the scientific tool set in a different framework or a number of different ones. You could even use, like, I don't think Jonathan has a problem with science. He's using a computer. So it's yeah. a thing like th these, these tool sets have a function, like, and some of them are for material worldly stuff. And some of them are for other things and put into a nice little order. And I think people can communicate, um, more clearly about things and people can find the right match. I mean, even just like personal match, sometimes one trainer won't work for someone else, but also someone's a specialist. Like I want to tell people to go and do parkour. I'm going to go and recommend you, or I want to go and recommend someone else for this. It's this, like, I don't have to do everything. I'm happy with being shit at a lot of things because I've found the things that I like to do. Yeah, sure. And I know, I actually know a lot of really good people like and I can recommend them so I think that there's this type of the language to harmonize these things has to realize that there's some very different shaped consciousnesses out there and they view and value completely different things and they value partially things and they warp the value structure of things and if you can stretch these out you can get what I think could be slightly more harmonious, maybe not like grand human values or something like that, but you could get a little bit more like, okay, you really value that thing, but I really value this thing. Can we kind of maybe not kill each other about it? And you refer to the, the mind shape of being a world, right? Again, that, that's asking this question, what's the direction? What is not warped? And like when we talk about, huh? Yeah, yeah, not warped is it's, so a little bit of it's kind of, 
you get these things like everyone in the West loves Leonardo da Vinci, the Renaissance man, more or less. Yeah. So it has a little bit of that ideal. Like you get like, let's say, and this has been a part for both of us. You've done a little bit too much like academic research and book reading and you go and do some physical stuff. And man, that's like, there's a quote, like intelligence in that, like physical intelligence, even though that's kind of like, just the era in putting that thing on top of that particular quality. And then you do some, something that works to open up the, the compassion for people or you just digest life and you have kids and having a baby is like an amazing heart opening experience. You're like, oh. and you just, you end up just loving babies after having one. And it's like, you see babies everywhere. And it's just like, man, they're so cool. And so you start to develop an emotional side of things, which like for me particularly, was locked up because you kind of get trained and trained that way at a sociocultural level, but also the, the third mind shape shuts that down because it doesn't want to listen to it. So you start to become a person who has a choice between which center you would like to use. And also there is this other emergent thing that happens underneath that. So for me, what I value is new bodies of work that could have some type of shift in the world because when you start seeing the mind shapes clearly you start to see that everything that is mechanical kind of has a, a similarness to it and that kind of gets dialed up into a high resolution and so on the plus side it makes it easier to find stuff that's actually doing something really different but it means a lot of things you thought were really creative end up not being viewed in exactly the same way afterwards even though they may be doing something else that's cool. So I personally think that cultural artifacts from outside of the mind shapes have an incredibly powerful effect. Just like really creative things like you, you put that book list, book list of like cool fantasy and sci-fi novels, which I'll read some of because I haven't seen some of those. But you think about the effect throughout the last however long since it was released of the Lord of the Rings upon the like the mind at large in the West and beyond. It's like, it's immense. Mm -hmm. It's just the amount of joy I get from the Lord of the Rings memes still going after 20 years after that movie is high, like yeah. makes my day great. But then like it's effect on all the other authors. Like, so I think like one, that's one, one guy and there's lots of other examples of all different types of cultures. They have a big, big effect. So I wanna, run through a few different ideas and kind of get to where, where um, maybe where our, our projects intersect or where I see a hole in you and suspect you see a hole in me or something. But there's this, I want to talk about the, uh, a specific fantasy novel, the work of Arshda Baker, um, because it does really come up for me a lot in these conversations. I want to talk about this idea of the pre-trans fallacy and then about the trap of egotism when we when we start to conceptualize things in stages and how we avoid yeah. it. How do we play with this? So I bring up Baker because I think I think Baker's fundamentally wrong. But I think that he's <laughs> he sometimes a negative image of something almost teaches you more than the positive image of it. And I think that 
you can almost see Baker as a negative image of Tolkien. And we've- Interesting. And, and Tolkien is, let's say, um, I think Tolkien and Lewis, in some sense, actually point the way to the solution, maybe better than anything else. And, and it's weird because, you know, I point out to people that Tolkien was like a conservative Catholic, and yet he's this huge figure in the counterculture, right? And Narnia is, is Christian apologetics. And there's something very interesting about that to me. And, and ultimately, they both have these very hopeful messages. But what's happening in, in fantasy fiction right now, you have the really interesting fantasy fiction, which is mostly inversion of tropes, right? It's, mm. it's, it's confronting us with the idea of the hero and saying, no, you don't get to believe in that. It's confronting us with the idea of the, of the, of the triumphant king and the good kingdom and saying, no, we're not gonna believe in that. You know, we're not gonna really believe in wizards who do good things. We're gonna get rid of all of that, right? So like, no. it, Joe Abercrombie also is really, really does this well, but fundamentally it's very postmodern if you think about it, right? So, you know, um, Logan Ninefingers is the main character of, of, uh, of um, the First Law trilogy. And it, he basically is a serial killer, right? And he's been very successful in all these violent situations because he's really good at killing people. <laughs> But he's very charismatic and charming. And so you, you start to like him. And then over time, you realize that like, all this guy's gonna do is bring death into every situation. And so Abercrombie, I think is great as an inversion of this. Martin's the same thing, right? George R. R. Martin. But I think Baker delivers this all with a deeper, with more depth in, in what, in understanding what he's doing philosophically than anybody else, from my perspective. And he he's trying, he talks about, he's trying to crash our, he's trying to crash our mind shapes. It's literally, like he wouldn't use the term mind shapes, it's basically what he's trying to do. But he uses the term crash space. And he sets up a world where, so his 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 quote is, if if God is dead, then fantasy fiction is is his graveyard. We, the meaning, the enchanted world died. We lost it and we are attracted to go back to it. And fantasy fiction is a, a means to, to re-enter the enchanted world. But Baker ultimately believes the enchanted world is horrific. Right? And so he sets up a world where, where there are gods and there is a, a supernatural and that supernatural has impacts on the, on the material world. And those impacts are just as amoral um, and pernicious as you know the worst interpretation of the Old Testament God or the Greek gods or uh, or you know or Indra and 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 and, and the Indian gods, right? So you start with this, and then then he has this sect of of monks called the Dunyang, and the Dunyang are the Dunyang spend. 20,000 years practicing eugenics and studying the principle of causality. And they represent modernity, right? So you have the superstitious world-born men who are ruled by gods and then you have the dunyang who are ruled by reason and logic and causality. And then the big bads in this universe are aliens who've invaded basically called the Inkorai. And the Inkorai have recognized that they're damned 
And they believe that if they can reduce the amount of souls in the world to 144,000, then they will cut the material world off from the outside. Right? And they, they basically represent postmodernity in some sense. So Baker says, you want this, <laughs> you want enchantment, but actually it's horrific. Um, and I think that like sometimes I listen to John Pajot, I think he's so insightful, it's such good stuff. But the way he describes the symbolic worldview of the medieval period, it's like, you're forgetting all this. It sounds like you're forgetting all the smallpox and <laughs> the massive levels of rape and burning cats and homosexuals on, you know, <laughs> at witch trials, right? And, yeah. and you know, so many people in our circles um, are, are primitive romantics, right? They're, rom they're romantic about primitivism, anarcho-primitive romanticism, right? They think that if we could just go back to living like hunter-foragers, like all these things would just go away. Mm -hmm. And they forget that like 50% of your children are gonna die without modern medicine and 30% of adult males will be killed in warfare or murder. And, you know, a similar number of women will be abducted and raped and become war brides. That world has its own terrors and horrors. So I, I agree that, that, the, that the worldview that we're currently stuck within, we've, we've run into the end of it in some sense. Mm -hmm. we, we can't solve the next set of problems with reductions. We have to go back to complexity. And we have to, you know, Ian McGilchrist would say, we have to reintegrate the right brain, right? And that that's actually the part of us that, that has the best capacity to integrate all these things. So there's this idea of the pre-trans fallacy. Pre-trans fallacy is that, um, that, you, that at one layer of understanding, something can look like, like, X, right? And then at the next layer of understanding, it looks like Y. But then at the layer above that, it actually looks like X again. And if you're at Y, you can't tell the difference between the layer that sees it as X and the layer and the layer above that sees it as X, right? Mm -hmm. And it's like, you can't, it's hard to tell the difference between the people who know enough about science to be, to have been hip to the lab leak hypothesis from uh, since March, from the people who don't know enough about science that they're just skeptical of science and rejected everything that the authorities told them. Yeah. Unless you're very well versed in science. Which people aren't, look. Right? So I can see this. And so then, you know, you might say, well, I'm an integral thinker, right? Or I'm, I, I can see, I can see the, <laughs> I can see all three mind shapes and I can feel that I'm somewhere able to play with them. Like, I think, I, I'd like to think that I, I'm very good at rooting my stuff in science, right? And I operate well. I think I'm skilled in operating from a scientific worldview. And I also think that I can recognize that that, that that worldview is insufficient and that I can operate in some of these other worldviews and get insight but I don't necessarily have how they interact 
completely mapped out. And that's a lot of what I'm doing right now is trying to, to map that better. When, <laughs> when I listen to people who, like integral I think is an interesting idea until you try to apply it to yourself. Because as soon as you decide that you're an integral thinker and that you're on the other side of the pre-trans fallacy, right? Then you're, you, you end up having an egotism about your own thing. And then you argue about which perspective is actually integral, right? Oh, yes, yes. Jordan, Peterson is, Jordan Peterson is too much in his amber, right? Says yeah. the person who I perceive as being too much in their green, right? Yep. So, so I'm, I don't know how all of these things come together into a question for you, but what I'm interested in is this idea that we, we do have to integrate. We do have to move past the problem of modernity. But I'm very interested in, in how do we make that as coherent and as scaffolded up as easily as possible. I wanna be able to communicate like with my, with my dead rationalist atheistic self from 10 years ago and lay the steps out for him as easily as possible, um, such that, that I'm not just creating, and I'm not just entering a new mind space that's in conflict with that previous, or mind shape that's in conflict with that previous mind shape. Okay. So for me, that has come down to, it feels like being very articulate in what the scientific method is and why it's insufficient and it is a problem and then being really, really clear about what your value structure is right? and saying to some degree, it is arbitrary, but you have to, you have to put faith, let's say, in some structure that you're going to orient towards. That seems like a path out. So I think that a lot of what you're doing seems really aligned with that. Um, and I love some of these ideas of, uh, I think there's, uh, I think it's the, the word, I, I was gonna say silly, but that's the wrong thing to say. I think the words that you use around coagulation and chelation and some of these things are really, they actually really synthesize beautiful concepts once you dig into them. But I worry about the sense of, of, of sort of separating into this mm -hmm. little mystery alchemist group that then, and I, I don't say this because I see this in you, but I say this because I've seen it so often play out. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah I've seen it many times as well. It's a known, a known thing. Yeah, like it's when you like, talk about the things that you can't see until you're there, that's the thing that all the bullshit spiritual gurus talk about. For sure, but it's also what people who have done interesting things with themselves who work in different ways in that also say or quite similar. So I understand the, the thing because I came from the, the place of hating, hating that as well. And so this is part of why like some of what I've done, um, just as ideas, like there were whole bodies of work and people I fasted from for the whole time I did this experiment, mm -hmm. just so that I could at least do some partial apophatic proof of going, look, I never argued about this in the public forum trying to tell you this is this and this is this and this and this and this. I showed hints, didn't force anything, didn't say that, trying to negate the fact that yes, these things can cause egotism for sure and you just, it's epidemic across the world, but also there are truths to these things. 
or there is there's something there like even on the physical level when you run into teaching people i mean you've seen all the like all the kind of like hustle and bustle in martial arts people <laughs> like it's it's been going for 20 years it hasn't really stopped as far as i haven't looked for like a few years but like people have these uh interesting views and perceptions and they like arguing back and forth and on and on and on going back to the beginning of what you were riffing about i don't use enchantment very much anywhere anymore that word because it kind of gets put into how some of the way you were describing the original term disenchantment it was kind of good but then it's it it means so many different things to people so i started to drift away from it a little bit the same with enchantment um i wouldn't i i don't particularly glorify the past for me the modern era is the one where the civilization post-industrial revolution moved into Cerberus 3 on the civilization level but before that it was just Cerberus 2 so there was slavery and there was torture and there was terrible crimes and before that it was Cerberus 1 so it's kind of run a, a procession through there. Do you mind describing what the three mind shapes are? That's the million dollar question which is really hard but they relate to I guess I think my daughter's just gone up. They relate to three centers of the body. So physical, emotional, and mental. And they, in the mm, cosmology they come from, they relate to, uh, you could say, hyperfixation or warping of that particular center. So it overclocks and it narrows down a particular tunnel at the exclusion of some other things. And that creates a person who is inharmonious and also on the level of the culture and the world creates cultures and civilizations that are inharmonious in certain ways that are different but as far as i can tell as long as you go back there has been in her like in harmony of different sorts like you mentioned all the like terrible stuff that happened for sure and there were also really cool things that happened at the same time that have been lost and the same in this period like i don't think I mean, there are these, you mentioned a few of them, these like potential golden ages, and I don't really know enough about like the Islamic golden age, or there was a period in, in China when Zen was very much in power that created some amazing artistic developments and a lot of very interesting uh, contemplative uh, things happened there. And there's some ones in India as well. But like, it's a thing I'd love to go through these for the next 10 years as a history, like, Thing, but I'd rather just teach people my method. But again, you also need some way of trying to articulate this. So this is the dilemma and why the bookcase behind you and the bookcase over there is full of books is because when you're trying to articulate something new, you kind of have to back it up somehow, even if there's not really much what people would call evidence for some of the aspects of it, you have to provide some type of a way for people to at least try and observe these things in the world and maybe where they came from but personally i don't really it's not like i care about that but the fact of the matter is you can learn to see them even without knowing a huge amount of those periods of history and you can start to work with them and that's where the kind of the interface comes in 
where you start to actually, then you can look at those things. And it, it, it's kind of hard because so many people are doing really weird, like amazingly fantastical interpretations of history. And then I also believe that mainstream history has missed a few things as Berman mentioned in his book, particularly with like aspects of the body and its intelligence haven't really been preferenced. And there's, there's a whole types of things that are, that are missing from history, but it's still interesting to study and trying to piece together some aspects of how we got to be where we are. Um, the X, Y thing, I will say there's a particular um, saying in one of the traditions is that the human, like the human mind functions in a binary, but reality manifests in a trinity. So I would say there's also a Z option, but we like looking at binaries. What that Z option is? Mind shape three uh, mm -hmm. is, the, is the dominant mind shape that we currently occupy. That's my theory. And this would be, this would, this would, this is the sort of, uh, we can map this in some sense. So tell me, tell me how you think these mappings work. For me, Mindshape 3 looks a lot like addiction to what Verveke calls propositional knowledge. Mm -hmm. it's, it's the desire to acquire semantic and logical things, right? And to, uh, to be able to play with those and to be able to feel knowledgeable about those. Um, and the yeah. problem is, from a Vervekian perspective is that actually doesn't give you a sense of meaning, right? It can, it can stimulate you, right? You can go on Twitter and acquire 60 new propositions or Wikipedia, um, but it doesn't give you a sense of meaning. Meaning comes from being able to actually do things and having them in your body. Right? And, then, um, and then from like an integral perspective, I think this would be like, or a spiral dynamics, this would be like Amber, right? Is that, the modernist layer. So then we talked about, I think Mindshape 1 is sort of the animistic, maybe wooey layer. And this, this to some degree is what we're seeing sh show up in, in postmodernism or like the green layer, right? all the new age spirituality. Um, but also maybe it harkens back to the magical, mystical sort of tribal layer. And then Mindshape 2, Tell me more about Mindshape 2. It's kind of master, slave, feudal, empire style stuff. Okay, so it's so hierarchical. It's hierarchical. It's also, it's metastatic in terms of it doesn't obey or doesn't want to know about ecological theory. It likes law of attraction, planet with no limits everything abundance in all the types of like from the kind of new age version of that to just clear like rape and pillage empire style of the old days what it is is it's a desire kind of for like accumulation far outside of what one deserves or what one group deserves and against ecological laws or whatever you want to say about that okay so it's a religion it's kind of like addiction to progress for progress's sake. Yeah. So this doesn't quite map to the, the concept. It doesn't. 
Yeah, let's say with the other thing as well, like modernism, postmodernism, and metamodernism is just the mind shape three trying to or just mutating away from getting out of its thing. It's this kind of man three also likes the ideas, like they like to argue about ideas. It's kind of they like to idea about ideaing about ideaing. Like, it's involving thinking, but doesn't like the idea of no thinking. Doesn't like some of the intuition stuff that Pajot mentions. Doesn't definitely doesn't like the idea of synchronicity. Doesn't like those things at all. It's kind of allergic to this mysterious but not fantastical element that runs through underneath things. Yeah. So. Um... Let me try this. Um, so a kind of like traditional flower child hippie. Would mm -hmm. that be someone you would associate with mind shape one? No. It can be that one's interesting. Like, and this is the thing when you try to put it on, sometimes a movement itself can have a like a subculture can have a shape perspective quite easily, but then people within them can be also like all different types so you can you can get some very funny ones like when people say like the banker like married the hippie chick it's just like everyone's like oh they're so different but for me they could both be shaped too one is corporate accumulation one is virtues virtue signaling accumulation it's both accumulation beyond uh just accumulation so they like accumulating attention as well as accumulating currency as well as accumulating lots of things but it's always about accumulation that's not my impression of what the counterculture was in the 60s right like no no i think it was actually like a genuine attempt to do something that then got derailed yeah so it kind of doesn't fit it doesn't doesn't really fit i don't know a huge amount about it either so because to me when you talk about accumulation that what that makes me think about is the interesting intersection of like new age spirituality and entrepreneurialism yeah that one's classic that's some of the best examples of that at the moment yeah so that's that uh, that i guess that mind shape too right whereas like mind shape three would be like sam harris yeah um so i'm, I'm curious actually to to sort of change hats for a second here like you know, I, I initially approached you about doing an interview um, quite some time ago. You weren't ready. You seemed very eager to have a conversation today. And I've really played the interview over here. Here's what, what ideas do you really want to sort of um, discuss with me? With you? Yeah, in particular. I, I like what I see in terms of you're a man with a craft. Like you see a lot of people and they're doing patchwork of a few different things. And that's cool. Like I was definitely doing that at a time you get us a few different tools and you're wanting to kind of do something a bit different. And we all kind of did that. You kind of have to, to get through unless something really interesting happens. But so I see that there's this thing. And for me, it's that, again, I really, I like, parkour and alive martial arts personally they resonate with me and they're very cool and they're for me they're 
potential vectors for the type of thing that I do, but they are different. So when I, I use physical work, I largely use stretching as a catalyzing agent for this work. It doesn't mean that if you do stretching, it will happen. It means it can be involved in catalyzing the process. And I think that parkour and martial arts can too, but they would work completely differently. So for instance, if, you, if you, you're doing stretching, there's no motion in the way that it or very little motion, it's very controlled. You can get a very high sensory awareness. You can do lots of other things like that. And that's the nature of it. You can, you can do lots of things there. But with something like parkour, and I know you've talked about this when I met you and a few other times, uh, the aspect where you can actually face fears like particularly types of like falling fears and just being up high and all of these things or martial arts where the, the physical art is in motion and in, in resistance to other humans. So when I do partner stretching, it's in cooperation with other humans. But this one has humans and resistance, which is just a different thing. So I personally think that those two categories can be used to do some of the same stuff that I do, but it would be done completely differently. And that interests me. So sometimes when I, sometimes when I'm doing this, the classes, the person will have a, a peak where they, they, jump into the next little bit. It's, it's not directly related to what they're doing with the stretch. You could say again that E word, emergent, it's something like that. But then that's really useful because if they will get a big like, whoa, when it happens and if I'm there, I can notice that because that's in my skill set and I go up and I can talk to them, go and get them to really kind of anchor in like, what does it feel like here? It's just like, it feels different. It's like, can you, I don't tend to make describe it, but just kind of like lock that feeling in and just look around and just reinteract a little bit. Something's different. And then they go away and they digest that and you can do that again. And it's, it's the beauty of training people in person, which we're kind of missing being locked in these rooms, zooming across the internet at the moment. So, yeah. but it's a cool thing. And I, so I think there's that. I also want to turn you into a druid and go to your dad's house and drive around in the wizard car. Yes. Um. Yeah, but there's this thing like I'm looking at people who are doing physical work plus something else. And there are some number of us, but there are some of us and that's kind of cool. And so, um, one of the things that's happened from me working with a few people I've worked with over the years who've actually kind of got what I'm doing is that they end up doing something that doesn't really look like what I'm doing, which is kind of the point, like not trying to create clones, trying to get people to do their craft in a particular way that's linked in with mine. It's that like, I'm like, I'm not really of the individual hero myth. I kind of like the fellowship better. Like around the round table type of thing. Maybe it's a bit romantic. I don't care. I kind of like the idea. 
because this kind of co-creation thing that can happen of a different order, linking people together is for me, it's like one of the real beautiful things when the going gets hard and it's just like, man, like, and it's like, ah, and you get a message from, and someone else has done something and discovered something really cool. And it's like, huh, there we go. I'm having a shit day. They're having a good day. This is good. I can talk to this person about this crazy shit I'm doing and they get it. And this is the thing, like a lot of how I've done with the, the terms and the apophatic delivery is I'm trying not to lead the person to see things because you can do that with humans and it's not particularly good for creating independent people who can also link together in a, a party and create something that's different but also works together. So definitely not for the homogenization type model or the franchise type model or the pyramid type model and for the kind of tribal circle model where people have their own thing that they do or the fellowship, whatever you want to call it, just like you do your, you do your thing. Cause for me, like, yeah, for me and like, let's say it's like 20 years and there's, even if there's like two dozen people or even if it's 10 years, there's two dozen people, like it would be the coolest thing ever to get together and just present like what one's been playing with that year. I mean, there's, a, there's, you're kind of doing that with the return to the source type thing. Like people are putting on these cool retreats that look like they're really fun to go to. And I think um, that they're very, very useful. Like imagine like the amount of accelerated learning you could do from someone who is perhaps not a neo fight, but like seasoned with like a good base, like we've all had that you've been to i've been to workshops this is like whoa that really really accelerated things i mean <clears throat> of course you have to go and do the hard training yourself but sometimes these kind of intensive things are what's necessary and i think having variety in them as well be pretty cool absolutely um <clears throat> you probably have to take uh your daughter to school or deal with getting your daughter ready for school pretty soon here in about 15 minutes, I need to start seeing what she's doing. Okay. So, um, is there any last things you'd like to discuss before we, um, we close for the day? No, it was like a pretty good first talk. I'm sure we'll talk a number of times yeah. about this type of stuff. Absolutely. We've got to talk about coagulation and what is the other term? Relation? Chelation. Yeah. Relation. That stuff's. Mm, that stuff for me made me think I could do this stuff a bit more widely. Like I have been keeping quiet about it. Mm -hmm. um, but you can kind of, not kind of, you can definitely map how people don't do the process. Again, it's kind of a shit way of doing it, but it's kind of the most precise thing I can do at the moment. So, um, I'm going to ask you one more question, which is just, just a personal question. I'm curious. Um, I thought it'd be a fun one to, to, to end with a little intrigue. What should be on my unreading list for the next six months? <laughs> Books, Rafe. Books. <laughs> what about blogs? Uh, actually, um, it sounds really weird, but it's a, it's a very profound thing. Like I noticed I had a very extreme addiction to reading 
And I was just like, man, you're not going to fucking die if you don't read for six months. And so I did it. And I really focused on teaching my classes and just physical and keeping it very simple. And huge things changed in that period for me personally. And that there's all types of other, I mean, a lot of the way that you work with the, the things is by fasting. It's pretty simple. You just stop doing the habit and that's hard. So you do little games with it. You can start really easy. Do that like you could go okay i'll only read books this thing i only read this thing and you just tone it down but certain types of material particularly like uh epistemological and ontological stuff really kind of reboots that shape <laughs> so <laughs> maybe just read fantasy novels for the next month see what happens did that after uh <laughs> During the, uh, the the embodiment conference, I was so stressed out. All I read was fantasy novels for like six months. Didn't, didn't touch any of the heavy lifting for for quite a while. Um, for folks yeah. who are interested in understanding more about physical alchemy, potentially working with you, uh, where do they find you? Where do they go? What's the next steps? I have a website that is in need of updating, but it's still pretty cool and has some articles. I'm on YouTube. Physical alchemy should be easy to find. It has me probably wearing this jumper on it. And the main thing that I actually use to teach these interesting little games and lessons at the moment is my Facebook group, which is just physical alchemy. It's a public group. You should be able to find it. It's got a Japanese kind of triptych as the banner at the moment, but it's pretty easy to find. So come along peek inside, you'll get lots and lots of pictures of nature, as well as occasionally some information about what I do. And yeah. pictures of swords. Pitched. Pictures of swords as well. Yeah. And writing while holding swords. Um, yep. Cool Renaissance costumes. I, I, I got to pitch you on getting you off Facebook and onto something like Circle, so we can get out of the hellscape that is social media. But, uh, yeah. We'll talk about that another day. Sure. Thank you. I'm open, I'm open to it. Thanks, Rafe. Uh, having a long chat with you and look forward to future chats. Hi. Adios. Adios, my friend. Hey, you've reached the end of another Evolve Move Play podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, if you want to be involved in the conversation, please consider joining us in our new membership subscription so you can get access to question and answers with our live speakers once a month, question and answers with me once a month and a dedicated forum to discuss everything going on in the podcast, as well as a general discussion of movement on our general movement forums. If you're interested in that, make sure to check out the link below, get signed up and join a part of our membership community. If you can't join our membership community right now, it's still always helpful if you can like, share and subscribe and even hit that bell and get notifications for upcoming Evolve Move Play podcasts. But adios for now and we'll see you next time. Thanks guys.